Gresham College presents The Dreams and Nightmares of Christian Liberalism by Professor Alec Ryrie. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Alec Ryrie. I'm the visiting professor of the history of religion at Gresham College. This is the second of a series of lectures on the modern history of Protestant Christianity. Um, and today we come to Christian liberalism. And I'd like to start with a story. Your challenge is to see if you can place it. A fashionable, forward-looking group of young friends in the big city, making name for themselves, carving out their generation's place in an exciting new world. And rather incongruously, everybody thinks it's incongruous, one of their number is a clergyman. His friends like him, but they're mystified as to why he should be interested in something so obviously out of date and reactionary as religion. Now, they're a literary coterie, and so he does what they're all doing and writes a little book to explain himself to his friends. And he's clear in this book about where they stand. It's not simply that their lives and the lives of all cultivated persons have nothing in them that would in the least way resemble religion. Nor is it that they've simply that they've succeeded in making their earthly lives so rich and many-sided that they no longer need the eternal. On the rare occasions when the subject of religion does cross their minds, they conclude, he says, that it's about fear of an eternal being and reliance on another world, beliefs which they find ridiculous. And they therefore conclude that religion everywhere can be nothing other than an empty and false delusion. Now, this story could, I think, be set in our own time, almost anywhere in the world. But Friedrich Schleiermacher actually wrote this description of his worldly friends in Berlin in 1799. Already, at the end of the 18th century, it's commonplace in some circles to dismiss Christianity as self-evidently ridiculous. Now, these lectures are on the history of Protestantism, and today my starting point is that for at least half of its history, Protestantism has been struggling not only against its ancient enemy, Catholicism, but equally against atheism, secularism, and religious indifference. This secularist challenge first emerged with the so-called Enlightenment, this restless mood of questioning which blended earnest philosophy with vicious satire and was marked by a moralistic rationalism. The Enlightenment liked Christianity's ethical teachings, but disliked anything which it called superstitious. For the Enlightenment, it wasn't simply that specific Christian teachings began to look implausible. The very fact of Christianity's roots in a particular historical moment and its claims that one historical figure, Jesus Christ, has eternal significance, that began to feel crass. Surely a mature philosophy would be more generic, more universal, and would focus on morality. Link that with the Enlightenment's commitments to religious toleration, and pretty soon you're thinking that the details of religious belief matter much less than your moral character does. 
And it doesn't help that for plenty of Enlightenment critics, moral character is one thing that is obviously lacking in the Christian churches of their day. For the radicals of the age of the French Revolution, the church was a thoroughly malign force set up, as the English revolutionary Tom Paine put it, to terrify or enslave mankind and monopolise power and profit, something which it did, above all, by peddling its Bible, a collection of the most paltry and contemptible tales. Now, for plenty of Christians, of course, the response to all this was to reject it as hateful blasphemy. But for some, almost all of them Protestants, blunt rejection of this didn't seem adequate. And these are the people who we may call liberal Protestants, although it's worth emphasising, as we'll see throughout, liberal theology does not necessarily mean liberal politics. The Liberals Project, the Theological Liberals Project, was reconciliation, to find something, to find a way of accommodating the best of Christianity and the best of the secularists' critiques. And naturally, in doing so, they found themselves opposed by hardliners on both sides. And the result was a set of three-way battles. And what I want to do with you today is to track some of those. But before I start, a warning. Most of us will instinctively identify with one of the three parties in this struggle, whether the conservatives, the liberals, or the secularists. Be careful. The struggles of our own times do not map neatly onto those of the 19th and early 20th centuries. You may find yourself having some unexpected sympathies. Two things fired Protestant liberalism. Two motives. One was a genuine determination to defeat the secularist challenge, not only in order to save society from madness and the guillotine, but to keep the saving power of the Christian gospel alive in ordinary people's lives. In 1892, in, in a book tellingly titled The Evolution of Christianity, the American theologian Lyman Abbott described himself as living in a time of religious ferment in which Christianity could only be preserved by expressing it in terms which are more intelligible and credible to modern ears. In good evolutionary terms, Christianity had to adapt or die. The old doctrinal certainties were now stumbling blocks. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was a considerable liberal theologian as well as a poet, believed that reinterpreting contentious doctrines offered the means of silencing and the prospect of convincing an alienated brother. If you want modern people to swallow the gospel on this reading, you need to get rid of the things in it which might make them gag. This pragmatic argument is true, but it's not the whole truth. Liberal theologians weren't just trying to make Christianity credible for the skeptics, but also for themselves. They, too, could no longer bring themselves to believe all the old doctrines. Liberal Protestants were, as we all are, men and women of their time. They shared their age's squeamishness about miracles and wanted a Christianity which didn't depend on them. They shared their age's belief in progress and improvement, and they found that their consciences revolted at the doctrine of hell and eternal damnation. And they shared their age's optimistic view of human nature. They wanted a Christianity which did not keep banging on about original sin. And all of this meant that to the traditionalists, 
Liberal Protestants looked like weak-kneed compromisers swaying with the winds of fashion whose only response to secularism was to retreat and concede. And there's a lot of truth in that. But it's not the whole story. If liberal Protestantism had been no more than a series of grudging concessions, it could hardly have survived and prospered as it did. What marked out the genuinely thoughtful and creative liberals was that they they did more than simply abandon old truths. They embraced new ones, or as they would see it, they used the insights which the skeptics had brought to see the Protestant gospel in a more faithful light than ever before. They're not abandoning the faith, they're purifying it. They're not willing just to tag along behind an intellectual agenda set by sceptical thinkers. They're trying to outflank it, or even get ahead of it, to embrace a deeper radicalism that could be both more authentically Christian and more authentically modern. It's unquestionably a brave approach, although, as we'll see, it wasn't always a wise one. The pioneer of this was... Friedrich Schleiermacher, back in 1790s Berlin, whose works are so of their moment, this point on the cusp of the Enlightenment and the Romantic Age, that they are now almost unreadable. But it's, it's worth persisting. He'd been trained in a kind of decaffeinated theological rationalism, in which the Bible was sieved to filter out anything miraculous or disconcerting and it left behind a moral code of which Jesus was the great exemplar. Devotionally, this was pretty thin gruel, but it was backed by both churches and governments which tend to like their religion in moralizing form. Schleiermacher's 1799 book, On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers, is an attempt to go in a different direction. His basic rhetorical maneuver in this book is the disarming feint. He lays out his readers' indifference to and contempt for religion, as I showed you at the beginning, and he then proceeds to agree with them. The idea that religion's purpose is to make people moral is, he says, an insult, both to religion and to morality. And as for the the cold argumentation and calculating proofs of theological reasoning, he says these are no more than the ashes that are left when religion's fire has died. Religion, he insists, is fundamentally not about how we act, nor about what we believe, but about how we feel. It is these heavenly sparks that arise when a holy soul is stirred by the universe. Philosophical speculation, which isn't grounded on intuitions of this kind, is worse than futile. Because philosophers like that tend to imagine that they are God, able to sit in detached judgment over creation, forgetting that they themselves are a part of creation, therefore limited and contingent. They need to recognize that their religious intuitions, as for all of us, are unique. He says it's like two people who look at the same night sky but wouldn't connect the stars in the same way to form constellations. But it's only in feeling the power of those unique perceptions and then sharing them humbly with one another. It's only in that, he says, that any true religion can be found. And so he doesn't call on his readers to accept specific doctrines, but instead to become conscious of the call of your innermost nature and follow it. He doesn't even urge the reader to believe, but rather to see with his own eyes. Now, you might think this is a pretty peculiar defense of Christianity, 
Plenty of his critics at the time condemned this as pantheist mush, which had conceded virtually everything to the skeptics. But in fact, Schleiermacher argued that you could get to a more or less orthodox Christianity from this unpromising starting point. And he said that if you didn't get there from this starting point, what you ended up with was a Christianity whose life was choked from it by dead theological formulae. For him, true religion is a matter of the heart, of longing to be grasped and filled, of feelings like holy music. He's not so much trying to argue a case in this book as to awaken his reader's own religious intuitions. If, he says, your soul doesn't long to drink in the beauty of the world and be permeated in its spirit, then you have no religion, and there's simply nothing more to be said. And he feared that this was true, above all, of most professed Christians of his time. Stone-hearted, second-hand believers, he calls them. Two decades before Frankenstein was written, Schleiermacher compares this sort of religion to trying to assemble a corpse and bring it to life. His achievement, then, is to imagine a kind of Christianity which embraced the latest philosophies but still had an encounter with God burning in its heart. And this built a kind of Christianity which could be defended against 19th century scepticism and was worth defending. But in the process, he constructed a kind of Christianity which was at least as open to distortion, abuse, and caricature as the supposedly dead orthodoxies which he deplored. Now, to begin with, the market for this sort of religion was distinctly niche. You will notice that almost all of the people I'm going to talk about today are educated male intellectuals, and this remains very much an elite phenomenon. Most Protestants weren't terribly troubled by the ominous rumbles of scepticism and secularism to begin with. But during the 19th century, the changing weather begins to be unmistakable, a persistent drip, drip of unsettling new ideas from all directions is eating away at Protestantism's certainties, and in places threatens to wash them away completely. Many Protestants simply experienced this as a storm to be weathered as best they could, but some discovered that it had its own appeal and tried to ride the wave. The attack came from two principal directions, which I want to spend the next part of the lecture talking about. The two authorities which Christians had since medieval times described as the book of scripture and the book of nature both came under attack an explosion of new scholarly interpretations of both of these authorities, which seemed at times to threaten the very possibility of Christianity's survival. The threat posed by the new biblical scholarship was the, the more immediately apparent. Since its beginnings in the 16th century, Protestants, Protestantism had worked hard to close down what it saw as illegitimate ways of using the Bible. In place of the freewheeling appeals to allegory and symbolism, which had been the norm during the Middle Ages, Protestants insisted that the text should be read for its plain, literal sense. The problem is that large parts of the Bible consist of detailed historical narratives or ritual prescriptions whose doctrinal or moral relevance to Christianity is not obvious. And if you're no longer allowed to read these passages allegorically, you start instead to ask awkward questions like, are these historical accounts literally true? The 
chronological structure of the book of Genesis, for example, if read literally, dates the creation to approximately 4,000 years BC. Even in the 16th century, it was becoming clear that the historical traditions of Egypt, China, other ancient civilizations went further back than that. Miracle stories are a different kind of problem. Here, 18th and 19th century rationalists are struggling not against the text's inconsistencies, but their own incredulity. Could you really believe, to take the totemic example, that a whale had swallowed the prophet Jonah, kept him alive in its belly for three days, and then spat him out unharmed on a beach? Even to ask these questions was to enter a new world. The Bible was implicitly being treated as an ancient text which could be analysed the way other ancient texts were. When the English cleric Henry Hart Millman published A History of the Jews in 1829, it whipped up a storm of controversy, not because he made any particularly startling attacks on the biblical record, but because he recast the Old Testament narratives into the mode of secular history, treating the Jews as a Near Eastern tribe rather than as God's chosen people, and assessing and critiquing the documentary evidence. He didn't deny the miracle stories. He did something worse. He just didn't think they were very important. He went on to become dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. But not everybody who stretched boundaries was so lucky. In the German-speaking world, which was where biblical scholarship was at its most advanced, skeptics' careers were ruined. In 1839, when David Friedrich Strauss was appointed to a university post in Zurich, despite having published a notorious Life of Jesus, which openly denied miracles of any kind, the population was so outraged by this that it triggered a popular revolution and the overthrow of the canton's liberal government. Not many of us managed to write books which achieve that. In the hands of controversialists like Strauss, the new biblical scholarship could be a secularist weapon, a means of attacking Judaism and Christianity wholesale. And before too long, you were more likely to make your career than ruin it that way. In 1901, the German Assyriologist Friedrich Delitzsch claimed that virtually the entire Old Testament was based on earlier Babylonian texts. And by the time it became clear how gross an exaggeration this was, his fame was already established. It became easy for an interested non-specialist who was paying intermittent attention to conclude that modern scholarship had simply proved that the Bible was nonsense. By the early 20th century, for example, the scientist Ernest Haeckel, whose works are bestsellers both in German and English, could claim offhand that the Gospels were forgeries written during the 4th century and not attract any ridicule for such an outlandish view. Now, of course, many Protestants responded to this, as the Zurich peasantry did, with outrage and denial. The new biblical scholarship took a long time to seep out of the academy, and since most believers' everyday religion doesn't hang on the chronological age of the universe or on the edibility of seaborne prophets, it was possible for many of them simply to ignore these problems. But as ever, there's a third way. Most biblical scholars were themselves trying to understand the faith, not to destroy it. It became common to see the biblical text as encrusted with accretions and errors which needed to be scraped away to reveal the truth underneath. Coleridge summarised the distinction. He could no longer believe that whatever is contained in the Bible is religion and was revealed by God, but he could still claim 
that the Bible contains the religion revealed by God. So you can still believe that the Bible is inspired without having to believe that it's infallible. And if you did that, then you find you can give the dusty old thing a new lease of life. Schleiermacher had warned that the Bible could become merely a mausoleum of religion. This is the way of ensuring that it remains the living word of God. The American Presbyterian David Swing, who's charged with heresy by his church in 1874, urged his congregation, always distrust anyone who rigidly follows the letter of God's word. For thus you'll be plunged into a world of discord, and the Bible will lie at your feet a harp broken, utterly without music for the sad or happy hours of life. The argument runs that the Bible could be either a source of inspiration or a polemical weapon but not both. This approach, though, had formidable problems. If the Bible must be read in a human way, then it must be read like any other book. That was the claim made by a provocative set of liberal position papers published in England in 1860 under the extraordinarily anodyne title Essays and Reviews. And if you read the Bible like any other book, then you must be ready to accept that anything, anything in it might be untrue. Maybe it's only a fallible historical record of one ancient people's religious experiences. Inspiring, maybe, but no more authoritative than any other collection of myths. And it's this fear of a slippery slope that mobilizes 11,000 English clergymen to sign a declaration opposing this book, Essays and Reviews, when it's published. But, as with many slippery slope arguments, once the first wave of fear has died down, a weird calm descended. It slowly became clear that real Christian faith was still possible in the wake of biblical criticism. In Germany, the late 19th century is a time of renewed Protestant self-confidence, partly thanks to the newly unified German empires, aggressive promotion of Protestantism as a marker of German identity. In Britain, the new scholarship is largely dealt with by house-training it. In the 1880s, a group of biblical scholars in Cambridge used the new methods to reach some reassuringly conservative conclusions. And the problem fades from public view. Its chief legacy is a rash of literary lives, of Jesus, imaginative, often fictionalized attempts to retell the gospel narratives as a human story, but within an entirely orthodox frame. And you'll often find senior scholars producing works like this. Over 5,000 English lives of Jesus are written in the second half of the 19th century. For a moment, it looks as if the liberal Protestants have successfully ridden the wave. Alongside the crisis of scripture, though, is a not unconnected crisis of nature. The new picture of the universe which telescope astronomy is painting is a little unsettling, chiefly again because the traditional 6,000-year timescale of creation begins to look difficult. Some skeptics started to revive the ancient Platonic argument that the universe is without beginning or end, and that really is difficult to reconcile with any kind of Christian orthodoxy. But the real trouble wasn't overhead but underfoot. The spread of mining in the early industrial age makes geology an urgently practical science. 
The geologists, however, also find that their discoveries do not fit the traditional timescale. And as the idea of a 6,000-year-old Earth becomes more and more difficult to sustain, there are those who begin to feel that geology has disproved Christianity. Some are triumphant about that, some are distressed by it. The artist and idealist John Ruskin says, if only the geologists would let me alone, I could do very well, but those dreadful hammers. I hear the clink of them at the end of every cadence of the Bible verses. And in extremists, this leads some people to the quixotic claim that God had created the the earth in such a way that it looked old that it's created 6,000 years ago with the the appearance of great age, like a forged painting. Um, This is an argument which is immune to logical disproof, but is not immune to ridicule. The geologists themselves, however, tended to be more sanguine. Men like Charles Lyell, the the greatest geologist of the 19th century, argued that the traditional view of a young Earth shaped by a series of violent catastrophes culminating in Noah's flood was vulgar. He thought this was unworthy of the orderly and patient God in whom he believed. His vision, which he shared with many others, of a world shaped by slow, ancient, continuous processes. This is as much a religious or even aesthetic view as it is a scientific one. They reasoned that a perfect divine designer wouldn't wrench his creation around like a drunken rider. Charles Kingsley, the scientist and historian who's now mainly remembered rather unfairly for writing The Water Babies, found that reading the new geology made him rise up awestruck and cling to God. For him, and this is the classic liberal manoeuvre, the new science doesn't just underline old religious truths, it reveals new ones. He calls the science the devil's spade with which he loosens the roots of the trees prepared for burning. That is, what it does is unsettle the lazy and formal faith of nominal Christians. The science, therefore, requires you to respond not with a leap of faith, but with a leap of the imagination. You have to be ready to see that the universe is dizzyingly vast and ancient, and in that, to find not what many people of the time found an alienating, dreadful emptiness, but rather to find what Schleiermacher had called an astonishing intuition of the infant. It could be done, but it had its price. The rocks on which the old faith was being refounded turned out to be harder to read than some of these blithely confident liberal rebuilders assumed, because, of course, geology was only the warm-up act for the crisis which broke in 1859 with the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Now, the idea of evolution, that that living forms could be transformed into other forms, was in itself pretty old hat by this time. Darwinism's novelty was first that it provided a plausible account of how evolution happened in the form of natural selection, and secondly, that it thrust itself onto the public imagination as few scientific ideas ever had before. It's an idea whose time has come. His book becomes a bestseller. Many of his readers find his arguments intuitively true. So, once again, for Protestants, the same classic three alternatives. There are a few who decide that evolution explains the origin of life, makes a creator god redundant, and so abandon their faith. The universe, Darwin's German advocate Karl Vogt, claims, 
consisted entirely of physical matter. And such matter was never created, it simply exists eternally. Vogt famously claimed that the brain excretes thought as the kidneys excrete urine. This is a, a radically anti-metaphysical view of the world. Naturally, orthodox believers on the other side push back, and this helps to seed the, the persistent myth of a great set-piece battle between science and religion. But it's very rare, in that generation at least, for Protestant opponents of evolution to make their argument by appealing to the Bible. They dislike evolution not because it's hard to reconcile with Scripture, but because they dislike the notion of directionless, endless fluidity, in which species shade into one another, in which nothing has an unchangeable essence, in which evolution has no ultimate purpose, and in which it proceeds by means of vast suffering and of endless extinction. Now, none of those things contradict any core Christian doctrine or plain biblical teaching. Indeed, you, there is a group of bluntly traditional Calvinists, the people who had always maintained that the world is utterly mired in corruption, readily embracing Darwinism. It proves that they've been right all along. But this is not a view which fits with many Victorian Christians' optimism nor with their sense of hierarchy and order. Nor, frankly, does the claim that humans, including white humans, are descended from apes, fit with their sense of their own dignity and importance. And it's these concerns which help to shape the way that liberal Protestants who accept Darwinism go looking for the spiritual insights that it might have to offer. Like the gradualist geology, Darwinism suggests a God who works patiently, within his universe, ever-present. One Oxford theologian calls it infinitely more Christian than the theology of special creation in the 1870s. But the excitement comes not from the strict Darwinian doctrine of natural selection, but from the more seductive notion of evolution, a word that Darwin underused, and which quickly becomes almost synonymous with progress. Maybe under God, evolutionary change isn't the directionless phenomenon Darwin had described, but maybe it drove inexorably towards higher forms, from microbes to monkeys to men. Maybe, the idea is intoxicating, maybe this principle of gradual, inexorable progress is everywhere. After all, that would explain how 19th century Europe had become the pinnacle of civilization. It became common knowledge that Mr. Darwin had proved that progress was a law of nature. Darwin had, of course, done no such thing, and he deeply disliked this sort of mysticism. Its true begetter, rather, was Herbert Spencer, a political philosopher who had abandoned Christianity for a progressivist philosophy and who replaced Darwin's neutral term, natural selection, with a term of his own coinage, the survival of the fittest, which, as you can see, he applied to his own whiskers. <laughs> Suddenly, evolution became a moral imperative. Those who survived and prospered deserved to do so, by definition. Wealth and power, therefore, are signs of virtue. The poor and the weak are unfit and therefore doomed by the law of nature. Attempting to protect them, even to educate them, isn't just unrealistic, but arguably it's immoral. It's better and maybe even kinder to let nature take its course, or indeed to help it along by weeding out the unfit 
and accelerate the, in any case, inevitable progress towards a better humanity. Darwin himself was, was somewhat less racist than the average Victorian Englishman, but his successors had no such restraint. His German popularizer, Ernst Haeckel, argued that European imperialism proved the superiority of the white races. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, coined the term eugenics for his scheme to give natural selection a helping hand. John Fiske, whom Darwin called his best American expositor, reckoned that what he called the English race would inevitably crowd out the indigenous populations of both North America and Africa. Fisk coined the term manifest destiny to describe this. And that phrase's queasy elision of what will be with what should be, I think, sums up what we now find repellent about this whole pattern of thought. Fisk also claimed that Darwinism proved the existence of God because religion itself, as a human, and ph human phenomenon, could not have evolved unless it were true. That argument looked shaky even then. But it demonstrates that evolution in general, and Spencer's social Darwinism in particular, was compatible, or could be made compatible, with liberal Protestantism. Darwinian natural selection, overlaid with Spencer's triumphalist moralizing, is sanctified by a claim that the endless struggle for existence is God's will, and therefore that the victors in it are the blessed. Evolution, the Scots free churchman Henry Drummond wrote in, in a book whose, whose title was a conscious nod to, to Darwin's The Descent of Man. Evolution is advolution. Better, it's revelation, the progressive realization of the ideal, the ascent of love. This makes a spiritual virtue of the, ideas most, of the age's most powerful secular idea. And it also provides the perfect repast to any conservative Christian naysayers. They're worse than wrong. They're out of date. The liberals have out-evolved them. Now, of course, it's easy for us. We know where this notion of triumphant progress lent. Where it ended up. In 1914, two of the world's three great Protestant powers, Germany and Britain, went to war with to cheers from liberal Protestants in both countries. And in 1917, the third, the USA, rode into the fray on a wave of liberal Protestant warmongering. Liberal Protestantism in all three countries survived the war, but it lost its innocence. The story, or rather the three national stories, which I, I want to look at for most of the remainder of our time, are not prissy. Let's start with Germany. German Protestantism, far more so than its British or American counterparts, was unified and dominated by the state. It was common for late 19th century German pastors' homes to feature paired portraits side by side of Martin Luther and of Otto von Bismarck. Germany's two liberators. The, the strongly nationalistic bent of the unified Protestant church is hand-in-hand hand with its political conservatism. It sees internationalism as a dangerously socialist notion. Germanness comes to be associated with certain specific Christian or quasi-Christian virtues. Courage, honesty, honour, love of beauty, disdain for profit, rising above notions of material 
advantage. You can see those sorts of notions being picked up in these propaganda posters from the beginning of the war. And in keeping with the social Darwinism with which Germany was particularly enchanted, Germany's own dizzyingly fast rise to world power in the last quarter of the 19th century proved the superiority of its virtues. But German Protestant self-confidence is an anxious, brittle thing. Germany sees itself as a new power, but Germany, Germany's Protestant church feels itself to be in retreat in the country's huge industrial cities, threatened by socialism and by secularism, as well as by the ever-present threat of Catholicism. The fear is that Germany might win the new industrial age but lose its soul. And so when war comes in 1914, Protestant clerics hope this might be a moment of national awakening because this is a war not for profit but for honour. And it's an honourable war. As the preacher at a service for German parliamentarians on the 4th of August 1914, the day Britain declares war, as the preacher put it, this is a war of German civilization against barbarism. German faith and piety are intimately bound up with German civilization. And that elision between civilization and faith becomes common. Some people begin to talk about how Christianity needs to be Germanized. This clerical excitement is in part based on a narrative of a just war, it's widely believed in Germany that France had attacked Germany initially. Um, Germany sees itself as the victim of a coordinated plot between the sub-Christian Asiatic hordes of Russia, scheming Catholic and socialist France, and the lowest blow of all, the stab in the back, Britain, whose Protestantism was, was now just a hypocritical cloak for its imperialistic greed. How could Britain, Britain, which has conquered so many countries around the world on the flimsiest of pretexts, suddenly discover self-righteousness in claiming to defend poor, innocent Belgium, especially when Germany had only sent its troops through Belgium in the direst need? So now, instead, Germany is surrounded and outnumbered by these enemies, and yet it swiftly wins battle victories, in 1914, obviously, natural selection is working. With God's favors, favor, Germany's virtues are more than a match for any number of their craven enemies. In 1916, one minister asked, could victory be won against such odds? There's only one power that can do it. Martin Luther, the man of the gospel, who found courage through the power of the gospel and the sword of the spirit to assault, assault the whole world and a particular jab at the British, it's money politics. During August 1914, German congregations doubled in size in many places, especially in the most secularized cities. This actually seems to have been about families first saying farewell to soldiers and then praying for them. But to excitable clerics in that febrile moment, it felt like a revival. Everyone was swept up. More than 10% of all Germany's Protestant clergy volunteered for military chaplaincies. And notoriously, in October 1914, 93 leading German academics from all disciplines signed a declaration to the cultured world supporting a war to defend the land of Goethe, Beethoven, and Kant against the barbaric hordes massing on every border. And amongst them was the greatest liberal Protestant theologian of the day, Adolf Harnack. As the war ground bloodily on, German Protestantism, having made its bed, resolutely lay in it. 
As shortages of war material became urgent, churches were stripped of copper, brass and nickel, including by 1917 organ pipes and bells. Food shortages were biting, but as political discontent became, claim, became plainer, the Protestant establishment redoubled its support for the regime, opposing any talk of political reform and taking a particularly hard line against any suggestion of peace talks. After all, in a holy war, the threat of defeat should only renew your courage. In the army, those chaplains who'd volunteered in such numbers came to be loathed. When military defeat and crushing sanctions led to a collapse of both the army and the regime in October and November 1918, the churches are opposing change to the very end. One of the first signs that military discipline was breaking down was the near total withdrawal of soldiers from compulsory religious duties. German Protestantism had paid a high price for its folly, although the people whom it had cheered to war paid more. We can't blame the German churches for the nationalistic fervor that swept the whole country, but they played their part. The war cruelly exposed a key weakness of Protestant liberalism, which is that if the world decides to go mad, liberalism can do nothing to keep you sane. Schleiermacher's view that religion is a matter of feeling means that an outpouring of nationalistic rage is hard to distinguish from a religious experience. And liberal Protestantism's flexibility makes it easy to discard passé Christian principles like the notion of loving one's enemies. In 1906, the great liberal Albert Schweitzer had depicted Jesus as a fiery apocalyptic prophet whose ethic of non-resistance and love for humanity applied only to his specific historical situation and was now out of date. Ernst Trulch, citing Schleiermacher as a precedent, talked during the war about reshaping what he called the Occidental Christian religion into an idealism of freedom, an idealism which would both demand and justify victory at any cost. In the social Darwinist world of German liberal Protestantism, victory and victory by any means was always and by definition justified. So if liberal Protestantism wasn't actually responsible for Germany's destruction, it wasn't for want of trying. The British case, well, Protestantism is less explicitly politicized and far less permeated by liberalism than was the case in Germany. Of course, the British churches were no less enthusiastic for war. Even the supposedly pacifist Quakers supplied more soldiers than they did conscientious objectors. The bitter irony of British Protestantism in the Great War is how a theological stance so unlike Germany's produced such a similar result. British preachers, too, believed that in 1914 they stood at the hinge of history. The world is passing out of one thing into another, declared the Archbishop of Canterbury that summer. Much that we see set high is being lowered. Much that we placed low is being lifted up. You'll notice the whiff of evangelistic opportunism there. Although, in fact, despite considerable effort, attempts to spark revivals of religion amongst British troops during the war proved largely futile. But the churches were hoping for more than just some immediate conversions. As in Germany, British Protestants hoped that a good dose of war might draw their secular materialistic nation back to the true faith. Perhaps the hymnodist Percy Dirmer, used in 1915, God has allowed us to pull down the temple of modern civilization over our heads in order that the survivors may be cured of the modern habit of regarding man as a calculating machine. 
But of course, the real enemy was German aggression, a phenomenon which British preachers blamed chiefly on liberal theology. Their diagnosis was that Germany had become intoxicated by social Darwinism, in particular by the notion that neither law nor morality could apply to states, a doctrine that some British preachers called the gospel of force. They claimed that German liberal Protestantism had degenerated into a kind of militarist neo-paganism, in which nation and race, the notion of culture, was, was, was preferred above humanity and universal principles, hence the depiction of the war as one of, of one between humanity and a German notion of culture. It thus fell to Britain to bring the once great nation of Germany back to its senses, and to do that, first it had to be brought to its knees. As the Bishop of London put it, we are on the side of Christianity against Antichrist, on the side of the New Testament, which respects the weak, honours treaties, such as the one for Belgium, dies for its friends, looks upon war as a regrettable necessity. We're against the spirit that war is a good thing in itself, that the weak must go to the wall, that might is right. And therefore, he added, apparently without irony, this was a holy war, and to fight in a holy war is an honour. As one pamphlet put it, this was a war between the mailed fist and the nailed hand, albeit one in which the nailed hand was firing a machine gun. The irony of both German and British propaganda during the Great War is that both sides are uncomfortably accurate. Both the German account of the British as self-righteous, money-grubbing imperialists who are sticklers for rules which somehow never apply to themselves, and the British account of a Germany which had abandoned the law of men and nations, took force to be self-justifying and prized national and racial superiority over justice and mercy, both of them have got a point. Britain's stance was the more traditionally Christian and also the more profoundly hypocritical. What gives the lie to both sets of justifications is the steady aversion of churchmen in both countries to any talk of negotiated peace. Each side insisted that justice, which is to say revenge, must be visited on their enemies. Liberal Protestantism wasn't as implicated in Britain's war-making as in Germany's, but neither country's war effort did much to support the liberal notion that humanity was making inexorable moral and spiritual progress. The heartland of that ideal was now the United States. By the early 20th century, a self-styled progressive Protestant theology had attained a remarkable dominance amongst American church leaders, many of whom preached what Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard, called the religion of the future. Christianity had once promised to redeem chosen souls from a lost world, but the progressive preacher Lyman Abbott wrote, the new social gospel, the progressive theology, promised something greater. The transformation of the world itself into a human brotherhood. The great worldwide democratic movement. Once again, this is an evolutionary ideal. The world is struggling towards a higher moral plane. A, a, a widely used seminary textbook published in 1898 dismissed the traditional notion of Christ's literal second coming. If, it said, our Lord will but complete the spiritual coming that he has begun, there'll be no need of a visible advent to make perfect his glory on the earth. And so these progressive Protestants set themselves to make the world a better place, campaigning against divorce, against gambling, against the exploitation of workers, and above all, for the prohibition of alcohol. All of these struggles are described as wars or as crusades. And so when a real war, 
thrusts itself onto America's attention from 1914 onwards, the progressive Protestants are ready. America's, of course, neutral. But from the beginning, it leans towards the Allies, and the progressive Protestants are at the forefront of that. This war to end war, this war for democracy and against tyranny, fits their evolutionary principles perfectly. It's the next stage, maybe the decisive stage, in humanity's moral ascent. The moral case that American liberal propagandists are making against Germany is unanswerable. Germany is the embodiment of evil. German aggression needs not merely to be contained, it needs to be punished. When President Wilson made a doomed attempt to broker a negotiated peace in 1916, 60 American senior church leaders signed a statement condemning the effort. They warned, there are conditions under which the mere stopping of warfare may bring a curse instead of a blessing. Peace is the triumph of righteousness, not the mere sheathing of the sword. It seemed to make sense that an organization pressing for the war to be fought to the finish should call itself the Christ Peace Union. Progressive Protestants didn't actually drag the United States into the war. Germany's use of unrestrained submarine warfare from February 1917 onwards did that. But they certainly tried. On the 1st of April 1917, just before the, you know, while, while Congress was debating the declaration of war, the ministers of New York's Plymouth Church, this is the most prominent progressive church in the United States, wrote to Congress urging that war be declared. They said that it was America's moral duty as the nation which was the world's last best hope to fight to save the world from militarism. The dean of Yale Divinity School claimed, without irony, that America is called of God to be a messianic nation. Like German liberalism, in a moment like this, American progressivism was willing to part company with some inconvenient conventional Christian ethics. It's unclear whether Newell Dwight Hillis, who's a minister at Plymouth Church in New York, really did say that he was willing to forgive the Germans just as soon as they were all shot, or whether he claimed that if we forgive Germany after the war, the moral universe will have all gone wrong. But he certainly called Germany a mad dog let loose in the world's schoolroom, and he reviled talk of negotiated peace because he said it put too much stress on human life. What is human life? All the great things of the world have been done through martyrdom, which is easy to say from a pulpit. During the congressional debate on going to war, one congressman read aloud a letter he'd received from an anti-war constituent who'd been dismayed by pulpit warmongering. And this is the, one, of the, one of the images that American churches are, are, are producing to urge support for the war. This letter, he, he, letter stated, We heard a minister state with vehemence that the great question today is Christ or Prussianism. His idea was that we should shoot Christianity into the Germans with machine guns and cannons. Just how much Christianity he could cram into a 10 or 12-inch cannon, he did not say. <laughs> Soon the whole country would be swept up into these sorts of sentiments. The United States has now almost forgotten its brief participation in the Great War. But for a couple of years, the nation was gripped with a militaristic nationalism to match anything in Europe. It's only fair to add that America's conservative and fundamentalist Protestants who had been mostly opposed to American participation in the war 
up to the point at which it's declared, generally swung behind it with enthusiasm once it had started. Amongst other things, they began to see, the, uh, see it as a war against corrupt theological liberalism, and especially against the evolutionary thinking which they now blamed as for, for the root of all the world's evils. Liberal Protestantism has never fully recovered from the Great War. In my final lecture of this year in April, we'll come back to some of liberalism's adventures and misadventures in the 20th century. Its dilemma essentially remains as it ever was. How do you discard those parts of traditional Christianity which are for one reason or another unacceptable or incredible and yet retain a core which is both defensible and worth defending? It's far more modern and more rational to treat the Bible as a collection of historic religious experiences rather than as a direct revelation from God. But if Christianity is to be simply a religion of intuition and of reason, what's to prevent it from descending into madness? When Charles Eliot at Harvard proclaimed a progressive religion of the future, the New York Times reporter present commented dryly that this was not a religion that anyone would die for. And it's hardly a comfort to discover later that plenty of people would at least kill for it. More conservative Protestants reviled their liberal brethren for having abandoned the historic faith for this malleable mush. And it's true that liberal Protestantism is and makes a point of being exceptionally adaptable to the world around it. In practice, of course, conservative Protestantism is almost equally pliable. All Protestants adapt, liberals are more likely to admit that they're doing it. And the theologians on all sides sent their young men to the same trenches. But I don't want to end on that note. It's too easy from our vantage point to condemn these early liberals for their reckless naivety and even their culpable blood guilt. But I don't think we should be as quick to judgment as they were. They were enduring a formidable bombardment of their own. Secularism in the early 20th century was, simply in intellectual terms, stronger than it has ever been before or since. The best modern scholarship of the day was telling Christians that the universe was eternal with no beginning or no end, that a progressive life force of some kind drove the world's development, that the Bible was a collection of myths and forgeries with almost no roots in real history, and that humanity was evolving to ever greater wisdom and virtue, a progress a process which made quaint notions like justice and mercy seem obsolete. We now know, or we think we know, that none of those claims are true. Our forebears had to digest them as best they could. Thank you. For all further information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.